0: And welcome back, or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus. John, what's going on, my man?
1: Man, I am super pumped, Stephen, because we're here, and we do what we do, which is give the people what they want, and you're giving the people a big, big treat. I mean, we should all be on our hands and knees bowing and thanking you because you're doing the hard work, you're doing hard things, and making a (laughs) course that needs to see the light of day, that should see the light of day, and is about to see the light of day, and is going to, be, I think, blow people's minds. What course is it?
0: Oh, man, it's part of our scholar program. It is the Igloy course. I got to say, John, you know, you and I have had a lot of fun creating courses and content all through the years, and we nerd out on this stuff. But this one might be my favorite one to do for a simple reason is there's not a lot of information out there on Igloy, but he was so successful. So the crazy thing about this is, is, you know, I'm going deep into the history when he was in Hungary. Like it was, it was crazy. He had the, you know, at, at one point it was three of the fastest people in the world, all training in the same group. And, and they were all favorites for Olympic, like they, everybody thought they were going to win the 1956 Olympics, like going away. It was like Hungary, top of the world, Sports Illustrated's writing about them as like essentially our, our modern view of, of Kenya. It was Hungary. <laughs> and then what happens, they go to the 1956 Olympics and the Hungarian revolution with Russia breaks out one of them doesn't even go to the Olympics. One of the st- top studs, top runners in the world, and the others are all thrown off by like, do we go back to Hungary? Are we having a place to go? Is my family in trouble? And that's what sent Igloy and uh, one of his top runners to the U.S. to start the uh, the Los Angeles Track Club, and then he did it in the U.S. as well. There was uh, did here's another fact for you. This is my nerding out is at. I forget the year, but in the 1960s, early 1960s, over half of the top-ranked 1,500 or milers in the world, according to um, top 10, according to track and field news, were from the U.S. And most of them, not all of them, but most of them were Aigloy disciples or Aigloy influence. And one more more thing, I'm just nerding out because I love this. I found where Bill Bowerman, yes, the famed coach, Oregon, tried to send someone down to watch Igloy train because he was like, I need to see what this guy does. And that athlete came back and said, I couldn't, I couldn't explain it. I couldn't even find him most, most of it because they're just doing crazy stuff. And, and, and that made Bowerman actually then went and experimented with one of his athletes. I forget the story on the top of my head, but I told it in the Igloi course, already recorded, is he had an athlete, took one of his athletes, and did some ridiculous, like, interval-style workout with short rest trying to copy, like, igloy style to see what the response was. So long story short, if you love nerding out on running, you're going to love this course. If you want to be a better co- coach, well, I'm going to tell you, this course is going to make you a better coach because Igloy took an approach that was brilliant and then kind of got lost to history. Yeah. And what, what we're trying to do is bring it back.
1: Yeah. I, I love that you talk about that. It's like, imagine like going to Olympics and let's say Ukraine's the dominant distance country at the moment. And it's right as that, you know, Russian invasion of Ukraine breaks out. Like everyone's like, oh, it was a bad coach because his you know, runners at, the Hungarian runners didn't win like the Olympic gold. But like, we know the human condition and emotion and reaction to violent threats like that is really um, disorienting, right? So it's like, I would not be fault that for that. But the most important thing I think That people don't realize is this man had the catalog of the best runners in the world in one nation. Hard stop goes around the world, rebuilds from scratch, just people who showed up and did it again. What? Like it and it didn't matter, Hungarian or American, whatever. It is literally the most powerful training model ever. I mean. It, it's rooted in, you know, again, the arc of history. Igloy was influenced by Zadapak. Igloy then influenced Kuntz and also Bauerman. The whole principle of flux training, which I use basically, you know, now almost uh, exclusively, Mike Smith is using with NAU's uh, cross-country track and field athletes. Several scholars are using with their athletes. The whole principle of flux training is rooted in igloy and if you understand igloy and understand flux training you understand how to train
0: it's that simple well, exactly look i'm i'm gonna hint at this too i found some very fascinating recruiting stories of athletes from igloys and we're, we tell those stories in the course so it's not only information on how to coach better in his style but we also tell some some stories that aren't often told um because you have to root around in the history. And it's just amazing, as you said. It's like you went from dominating in Hungary, again, not known for distance runners before or after or since. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> like yeah, it was it was him. It was Igloy. It wasn't Anything special about the Hungarian diet, anything special about the Hungarian training environment, it was just Eagle Eyes method methodology.
0: And let me tell you something else. When they came to the U.S. after the, the Olympics and started from scratch as well, if you read all the contemporary articles on U.S. running, you know, in track and field news and others, it seems like we were reading from the 1990s for us, right? We Remember, we were reading, you know, we grew up, you know, the tail end of the U S sucking 1990s, early two thousands before the Ritz Webb hall kind of rejuvenated it. But during that era, it was like, Oh, we've got Bob Kennedy and everyone else sucks. Like American distance running is horrible. What's wrong. That was the 1950s. That was it. They were like, what happened? We had Glenn Cunningham in the 1930s, you know, set the indoor world record. And then single handedly, almost like Igloy, Inspires this kind of uh, domination and comeback, which you know helps get people like Bowerman and and everyone else on board for um, doing some great things.
1: Yeah, I mean Priest thirty forty drill, the famous thirty yep. forty drill that that is rooted in that That is influenced hundred percent by Igloy. And the other thing I love about Igloy, I'll say this is he experimented with form and biomechanics as well. Like you read accounts from Bob Shule and Bob Shule like, yeah, we tried this style running and he had all these different terminologies, even like Kadavis Robinson, right? We'll talk about it. There's YouTube videos of him where he's talking about, okay, these are fresh runs. Okay. These are fast runs. Okay. These are good speed or good swing. And they use a colloquial term about it, but essentially they were working on different neurological ways to, pattern the, the 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 motor system but also too some of it didn't work and they threw it out like shul's like oh yeah we tried this type of style of running and this type of swing and it didn't work and it really got rid of it so he was also a master experimenter which i love too
0: all right so i have to use this as a segue to this week's topic because <laughs> it's perfect this week we're talking about the finishing kick mm. and the reason that the segue is perfect is well, guess what? In the in the scholar program course on Igloi, we break all the terminology down. I've got, you know, as you said, Cadivas Robinson videos. I've got, you know, um, Joe Douglas describing it. I've got Bob Chul's take on it. I've got two other athletes who trained under Igloi's take on it. I've got Fred Wilt you know, commenting about it in the 1950s or 60s or whatever have you. So we break it all down. But one of the things they experimented it with to improve the finishing kick is altering their biomechanics. And the logic was essentially like this. Joe Douglas explained it to me a long time ago as Igloy thought, essentially, that for most of the race, we run steady, right? Or even pace, Where, where have you. Our mechanics are relatively consistent. We're running even pace. And he's like, well, we must tire out the muscle fibers in this specific mechanical movement. So what would happen if we changed our mechanical movement and recruited different muscle fibers? Would that allow us to enhance our kick? So not giving too much away. What they experimented with was changing drastically they're biomechanics. They called it swing, right? They're swing type. And, you know, you or I might think of it as, well, do we take, sh- you know, sh- do we change our stride rate, our stride length? Do we put more force in the ground? Do we try and get more reactive? Whatever we have it. But Iglo and, and Schul and these guys were experimenting with, hmm, maybe we can shift our muscle fiber contribution to enhance our kick. Mm-hmm. And that's why I love, uh, I love the genius of it. And I think that works perfectly for what we're going to talk about today, which is let's talk about the finishing kick and how we can, you know, improve it in all athletes.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you're not a scholar, sign up, become a scholar. If anything, just join for one month and just nerd on the Iglo course and then also get access to the Mike Smith tapes from 2022, which, if you have not heard them yet, they are transformative and phenomenal. Like, he basically gives you the keys. To NAU's culture and how he thinks and operates. I mean, it's changed several coaches. One coach in the scholar program, after hearing the Mike Smith tapes, reoriented his program and you know his messaging, and got a program to state that had not been to state and floundered for many many years simply because so I didn't change the training too much. I just you know really changed my messaging. I mean, it's incredible. So changing programs, changing coaches, changing athletes. Become a scholar if you aren't, but Join us. It's it's gonna be exciting twenty twenty three.
0: All right. So let's 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 dive into the finishing kick then. Oh so- I love
1: this. Yes. I mean <laughs> go ahead, Steve.
0: No, so so here's where I'm gonna set the stage is what we have to realize is there's multiple when we think kick, we often kind of simplify. And we think, Oh, I've just gotta learn how to run fast at the end, we'll tired. Well, that's part of it, but it's a little more complex than that. It's almost like this two-fold thing. To improve our kick, A, we can get to that last 200, 300, 100, whatever you want to call it, less fatigued, right? Or, <laughs> on the flip side, we can shift, you know, well-fatigued, our ability to produce fa- power um increase speed um, while under high levels of fatigue and that's looking at it from a physiological standpoint then as we talked about in the you know discussion there's also the biomechanical standpoint which you know tom Telez, another great coach um, always told me he said you know one of the reasons that that distance runners don't know how to kick Is they have not developed the pattern, the biomechanical movement to shift gears. (laughs) They they think increasing speed or pace means putting your head down and giving more effort, but there is a biomechanical shift to this. And he'd always point to actually, you know, Peter Peter Snell. And his kick is like watch, watch old videos of him and watch how his arm stroke, you know, shifts and his power changes when he st- <coughs> starts to kick. In actuality, I remember one more story on this. I remember um, this was during the um, the early two thousands, and El Garouge kept getting beat at the Olympics and World, <laughs> you know, and he'd always be like. El Garouche. What does he do? He's stronger than everybody. He's faster than everybody. He's, you know, runs the faster fifteen hundred mile. But when it comes down to it, that last hundred, he's he keeps his mechanics the same while everyone else, you know, Lagarde or whoever, um, they're changing, right? And it wasn't. And then he watched whenever it was two thousand four. It's like. Algrulus learned how to open up a little bit,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? Simple change, simple difference. Now not getting kicked down. Yeah, it's
1: uh, it's very complex to the naked eye, but it's also actually very simple because it's a very stable thing. And you know, I, I, I like to point to a, a research paper called "Swing Leg Attraction, A Simple Control Model for Stable Running," um, which essentially looks at the defending element of gait which is swing leg attraction so what's swing leg attraction so when your knee or thigh is at the apex of anterior or forward flexion and then starts to reverse course and then goes from an ascending or in the recovery phase of swing upward um, goes from ascending upward it starts to shift course and now goes down with gravity Two things can happen. You have basically two choices. You, As Steve likes to say, you're at a fork in the road. You can either just let it fall down and just let gravity do its work, or you can neuromuscularly control and quicken and work with gravity to make that retraction happen faster. And it's a really stable um, model that is, in this research article they demonstrate, it is stable on human gait and animals across all speeds. Slow to fast. So, where a lot of distance runners' folly, Stephen, is actually in the inability or the lack of intent and awareness of retracting that swing leg down into the ground. And so, what happens when we don't do that from a mechanics perspective? Well, what happens is you actually then have a longer ground contact time because where the foot and leg lands relative to the body mass might be, quote unquote, a little ahead or overstriding. So, what does that do? It sets off this whole cascade, right? We have co-contractions that happen in the muscles. And a lot of times people are like, oh, co-contractions are bad. For movement, yes. But for stability, co-contractions are really good. So, what does a co-contraction mean? It means the agnostic and antagonist muscle um, then both turn on at the same time. So, this would be, say, the iliopsoas and the glute, right? So, typically... When the iliopsoas, which is a hip flexor, um, flexes, the gluteus maximus shuts off. But if they co-contract, then they're both on. And there's actually studies that show, like, the iliopsoas in the stance phase does turn on to create uh, femoral head stability, which is super interesting. So glute and iliopsoas are both on. They're co-contracting a hip. That's great for stability. We want stability when our foot's on the, legs on the ground, right? That's, duh. (laughs) But the uh, thing about it, though, it's really, really glycolytic. It's it's what we call fast twitch. And when that happens, the fast twitch fibers are the primary things that fire, which then boom, uses all this glycolytic energy. So if your foot is on the ground longer and you're co-contracting at different joints, hip, knee, ankle, et cetera, longer, and your foot's in the ground or uh, in the air less, well, what's happening, right, is actually you're expending a lot more energy from an anaerobic or glycolytic standpoint, creating a flood of lactate, creating a flood of all this different biochemical things. And so you get really fatigued. So for distance runners, because we don't practice sprinting enough or because we don't practice mechanically the finishing kick enough, that lack of control and lack of familiarity with the movement pattern makes it so it's super exhausting. And so what happens for most distance runners, you see it, they kick, And then they start to like, you know, have, as we call, as we've said in a a different podcast, the bear jump on their back, the acidosis bear, and then they stagger home to the finish line. So the, what's the normal response for most coaches kick closer to the line. So you don't get the bear, but really we should train the muscles ability to not co-contract quite as hard or as much when the foot's on the ground. So that less lactate, less glycolytic, less all that stuff bad stuff, quote-unquote metabolic bad stuff, uh, is incurred so you can run faster further from the finish line.
0: Okay, John.
1: There you go. How
0: how do you address that co-contraction? It's very simple. Practice, practice, practice,
1: practice. And I'll tell you what, wickets. Wickets for runners is probably the most important thing you can do, and you do it every single day. It's just like Igloy, every single day that is like my go-to for high school kids that's my go-to for a lot of people that is the most rudimentary way to make it so it's not a threat because a co-contraction right is essentially your body being like it's a threat i need to stabilize because you don't want to rip tendons you don't want to rip ligaments you don't want to break bones so your body's like oh crap this is so fast i don't know what to do i'm just gonna tighten everything and it's like we don't want everything tightened we want just the right tightness and stiffness at the right time. and they've shown this in like say karate uh, masters right, that they'll actually create joint stiffness in a punch at the last possible second at right before they make contact versus more novice karate um, practitioners will tighten the joints and tighten everything up way before the punch is delivered in flight and it actually makes the punch less powerful. Same concept here. practice, practice, practice.
0: You know, it reminds me, I've actually had a conversation after a presentation uh, with um, Vince Anderson, (laughs) the sprint coach who was at Tennessee and A&M for a long time, a very good sprint coach. And he was talking about wickets and patterning and like the importance of it. And then he talked about, you know, how A&M, our our, um, good friend of the show, Wendell McRaven, does and the Scholar, and in the yes. clubhouse. Welcome, yes. So excited for Do, you. Does, uh, <clears throat> you know, does does wickets um, and sprints with this distance stuff. And then, interesting, I got talking to Vince afterwards, and I was like, what about, you know, I get it doing it fresh and all that stuff, and that makes a lot of sense, obviously. And I was like, what about for the uh, the last part of the race? And Vince thought about it for a second, he said, you know what? For some of for some, you know, for some athletes and some workouts, I would probably set up wickets over the last, you know, 50 meters or whatever. And, you know, again, not complete exhaustion, but, you know, after they've done their workout, like have them go through the wick out wickets in an, in a tired state, adjusting the distance between that for the kind of pattern to, essentially minimize the, what you just talked about, um, so that you could get optimal kind of train and ingrain that kind of optimal stride and then time on the ground, that shorter ground, ground contact time. And I never did that, but I thought, you know, this is a really interesting and, in in and, and good idea where it's like, <laughs> we spend a lot of time, you know, thinking about mechanics or like movement or what have you, but we often don't kind of try to pattern it at at the end, which is what is a kick, but shifting that pattern so that like, you know what you're doing. It comes back to the Tom Tellez. Like most people, if you've never practiced it, you don't know how to change gears. And it reminds me of uh, something I watched the late David Torrance do, um, which is, at the end of a workout, he practiced essentially, you know, shifting gears in a fatigue state, and he did some interesting things where he changed, like some he would run without using his arms, and some he would, right? And it was a little bit different, but I always, uh, I always watch that and appreciate that. I'm like, oh, like you're tur- you're you're training your body what to do. And the last thing I'll say on this for the maybe skeptics is I remember, and I wrote about this a long time ago on the Science of Running blog is they looked at, it was one world championship and they looked at um, the biomechanics of the the top couple finishers across every lap and looking at the stride rate and stride length. And they want to see, well, what happened? Well, for most of the 10K, Everybody's kind of in around the same zone, like there's subtle variations, but they're running similar paces at the top. They're, they're, they're similar. And then it came down to the kick and then you saw drastic differences, right? Huge differences. And I forget, again, it's been years since I wrote about it, but the winner was essentially able to change his biomechanics, a crap load, either by increasing stride length and frequency or or one of the other and the guys who left behind they just kind of got stuck in that that same pattern and some of that's related to fatigue but some of that is also having the mechanical ability to know what to do to increase your speed
1: yeah no it's it's (laughs) why like say we look at bekele and go god he's just crushed on the track and then he's like yeah you know in this era like pretty okay marathoner, right? Has a lot of trouble finishing marathons, you know, not really relevant, uh, not winning a whole bunch. Like if he does, he's like, Oh, but killer won a marathon. Wow. That's wow. Whoa. But like, it was a foregone conclusion, right? but was going to win a world championship or Olympic 10 K 5 K, right? He just, and also world crosses when he was like crushing. Right. I mean, the guy was unbeatable. Why those races have a much higher demand on the finishing kick and the need for a good finishing kick in a state of fatigue and a rapid shifting of gears versus the marathon, right? Which in the marathon is a much more uh, metabolically um, de- uh, determined. Um, and you just have to go at a steady rate. And that's the thing. Like, but could do the steady rate thing because with the world records he set, but he was much, 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 much better at changing his shifting his biomechanics in sprinting like it was just you watch it or you, you read that article uh, that Steve referenced and it's just like you see how Bakili changes both stride length and frequency concurrently when he kicks and that's why he just you know quote unquote walked away from people
0: yeah it really is so I think you know step one we've kind of talked about is <laughs> like get the like train to do it <laughs> You know, like train to don't just h- hope it helps. Another thing I would say is here is it's different from running fast. People might say, but my my athletes like we do two hundreds and twenty eight or whatever. So they know how to run fast. It's it's no, it's changing the gears. It's the old Alan Webb Scott Rasco when in the middle of a repeat, Rasco would just yell. I think it was hit it. And then all of a sudden Alan goes from running, I don't know, 60 second pace to like, you know, 26 second to 200 pace. And it's just like, not all of a sudden, but it's what it is, is it's a grad, it's a build to the finish. (laughs) And all they were doing is training that ability to, you know, take off, to change gears. And I think in your own coaching practice, what that means is have some workouts You know, my high school coach loved doing this where maybe we run some 400s where we go the first 400 and, you know, 34, because that's going to be our two mile effort. And then that last 200 is, um, is gradually just crank, wind it down, wind it down, wind it down, wind it down, change the gears because it's different running fast and getting to into that rhythm versus being locked into a rhythm and then getting yourself out of that into a different, you know, uh, biomechanical state.
1: Yeah. I think the finishing kick really is 20 seconds out for most people for elites. You can go like 25 seconds out and for everyone, that's a different distance, right? So it's really knowing like, Hey, look, even a fatigue state or an accumulated state, you got about 20 seconds that you can rip it. And, or as Rasco says, "Hit it." Which side note that was taken from Gags. I always remember when Gags was an OTC coach. I'd be, st- I just stand next to him at, at races at Oregon at the last hundred meters, and he'd just be yelling, "Hit it, hit it, hit it!" <laughs> just nonstop. One of my favorite Gags memories. Um, but it's twenty seconds roughly, so don't expect an athlete to like hit it from a high school athlete to hit it from 200, 250 out. But when you go to that, you know max shift so to speak that max gear what that really is first and foremost is stride length longer stride better stride period a lot of people don't know how to um coach or get an athlete to get a longer stride length so they you know you see it all the time on the internet that's like the internet's favorite thing increase your running speed with this one easy hack and it's frequency, you know, but we know frequency, no matter the length has an upper yield, has a limit, right? Your neuromuscular system can only turn over so quickly. So would you rather have a choppy short stride that's only three meters long, or would you have a a nice, long, powerful, strong stride, mobile stride that's six meters long, same frequency, boom, faster runner, right? So first and foremost, we got to increase stride length. That is the place to start. How do you do that? Again, I go back to wickets. Like wickets are a really good um, constraint-led approach that allows you to manually adjust it. Now, wickets for sprinters mostly are used for stride patterning, and they go through the whole darn thing, excel to max velocity. We have no acceleration or little acceleration. We don't need to worry about acceleration and distance running. We're already on the fly. Yeah, you're accelerating velocity, but what you need to do is teach stability, in the motor patterning for that new stride length you want. And again, you only can go at the rate which the athlete responds. So, like for me, what I do is in a high school season, I'll start with wickets at one meter apart, three feet, and everyone runs that. And then I'll start to progress it by just a meter. Then I'll have a series of, like, say, 10 to 12 wickets next to the ones at one meter apart at now, you know, four feet apart, right? And then five feet apart and six feet apart. And I'll have several rows. So, And I just put them in the lane. So so I use feet instead of meters. So lane three is always three feet apart. Lane four, four feet apart. Lane five, five feet apart. Lane six, six feet apart. It's that simple. For about ten meters, you know, which is about ten wickets, roughly, maybe up to twelve. And then we do a run out after that, right? And so as the athlete gets stronger, they get more mobile, they get a longer stride. Then they can pattern through the different um, distances. Why does this work? Well. It's very, very simple. Uh, If people have read kind of, um, you know, Franz Bosch's uh, Anatomy of Agility, in the first chapter, he references Bernstein's Hammer. Now, Bernstein's Hammer is a really, really interesting study in what at the time they called dexterity, now Bosch calls it agility, but really it's about how we solve motor tasks with a clear outcome or um, with a clear result. So Bernstein hammer is pretty simple. He looked at skilled um, craftsmen hammering away, right? And he looked at the flight path of the hammer. And the result was always highly accurate. Every time the hammer hit, it hit right in the same spot, no matter what, for the more advanced um, craftsmen. For the more novice or apprentice, it kind of bounced around the result where it hit. However, the path it took to hit the target or the outcome, even in the really highly accurate, was divergent just a little bit every single time. So it led him to, um, you know, theorize correctly that no one stroke is ever the same. The body is always creating different strokes, very on a micro, we're talking very micro level. But the outcome is always the same. The outcome's highly predictable and accurate. Why? Why is this? Well, it's super simple, as Steve talked about. It's this cycling of muscle fibers. And this is why I love Iglo. He experimented with an idea. It might not have been accurate in what we know with today's science, but it was on the right path, right? So we want to change gait to essentially change the, the, the muscle fiber or motor sequencing that happens so that then we can have, quote unquote, rested or more rested fibers recruiting and contracting at very high velocities. But that's essentially what's going on. And so if you don't have a big enough motor fiber pool from which to draw, the way the body works is like every time you do a cyclical movement, think about it like let's say you have a small motor pool, like motor pool, four, four little motor pools in your, we'll just use a big simple muscle in the glute. And all right. And so one, one stride is going to say, okay, we're going to contract pool one. Then pull two, next stride, then pull three, then pull four. So, in four strides on one side, you contract four different pools. And it's so it's not all fibers in the muscle always turn on. Your body's really smart. It's like, no, it's only gonna be a select number, just enough to get the task done. So, I don't fall down, so I you know achieve the goal and I'm really highly accurate. Now, if you strength train, if you do plyometrics, if you do kind of quote unquote over speed work, guess what? You've increased your motor pool size, let's say hypothetically, from four to 20. <laughs> okay, great. Now you have 20 different motor pools to cycle through with each stroke or each stride. All of a sudden, that's why the strides look different every stride, but now they're way more accurate and you have way more um, sticking power because you gave more rest to the motor pools with every stride versus when you only have four not a lot of rest. They're on demand real quick. And we know CP, you know, creatine phosphate, you know, tends to uh, resynthesize about 50% with a minute's worth of rest, which is huge when you're talking, you know, even if we can get like, get that to be like from one second to like eight seconds of rest for a motor pool, that's still a huge amount of resynthesis you get. And so your contractile velocity will be bigger, it'll be better, it'll be more enduring. But this is why we have to you know, again, work, speed, ad nauseum from day one in our track and field athletes, even if they're 5K runners, 10K runners, whatever, because again, it's about this motor pool, motor unit recruitment development.
0: So I'm going to go back this. I wrote decades ago. I used to create this like <laughs> cheat sheet guide for myself Dude, for my coaching, it. yeah, which is just like a very small thing. Here's what I wrote for kick <laughs> development, and gosh, this is probably 2008 or so. Oh, um, young, young Steve. We're going back. Young. Three steps. Kick develop. Three steps. Step number one. Increase maximum fibers recruited. <laughs> I like it. Step two. Improve ability to use those fibers for prolonged time. Step three: mm-hmm. Learn to recruit fibers under heavy fatigue. And and what we're getting there is okay. Let me break this down because this is similar to what John just John just outlined how we cycle through fibers, and if we have a fi- bigger fiber pool, then like we're going to delay fatigue and able to recruit things when we we run. Right. So here's how I like to think about it: is fatigue is. You know we recruit our slow twitch fibers first generally cycling in and out but what happens is we we get fatigued we get a little more desperate and desperate and desperate and we're like oh crap like we can't keep it up we need more we need more fibers so what happens is you start recruiting those harder to recruit not as efficient fast twitch fibers during the steady part yeah right (laughs) The and things then you, you get, need for the end. You then, then you get the to middle. the kick. Yeah. You get to the kick. and You're like, Oh, I can't kick. It's like, well, you had to recruit your fibers, your fast switch fibers to get to, to stay on it. The other part of it is our fast switch fibers are really freaking hard to recruit. Yeah. Right. They take us a, a strong drive, like a strong, real, s- real strong signal. Symbols. Yeah. Right. Um, so what happens is sometimes it's just like the analogy I like to use in the marathon is you never run out of glycogen, right? You never get to zero. You're always, you get to the warning light and then you, sh- you shut down at some point before you truly run out of gas. It's similar in, in, in the fiber recruitment is we never recruit everything. Why? Because who wants to be stuck on the ground? like, with everything, all fibers done. Like, you know, it's not a safe place to be as a human. So what happens What happens is we intentionally, our, our brain doesn't recruit, you know, everything. So what we can do is that step one, increase the maximum fibers recruited. How do you do that? Not only biomechanical changes, but also simple things. And this is step one for, for developing kick is like sprinting. Like, you know, high neural recruitment strength training. Because if I go into the gym and I do, I don't know, a deadlift or a squat or whatever that is a high neural demand, guess what? My body s- starts going, oh, I guess we have to recruit these, like, these fibers. Like, send strong signals. Learn how to st- send strong signals to these muscles. Right? Right? that then okay great we've got a bunch of fibers we can recruit them now we've done the sprints we've done the strength training (laughs) well the next couple steps are well, well great but now we have to learn how to recruit use them and prolong their fatigue you know their resistance to fatigue under specific conditions so this is why you know if you ever wondered well why does uh Why did Lydia do you know some bounding or or Canova do hill circuits or Why does everyone and their mother do you know hill repeats? Well, what are you doing? You're shifting the fiber recruitment in a more specific way because you're running up a hill, which changes increases the the force requirement, which shifts to <laughs> more fast twitch fiber recruitment and you're training to recruit that in a more specific way, and then also prolonging its ability to fat, uh, to handle it, especially, uh, with some hill stuff. You can take this a step further. And Canova actually was the one who suggested this initially where I got and He said, you know what? Do some bounding in the middle of repeats. His, his was, you know, 200 essentially at around 800. It, well, let me step back. He had this workout, and I think I remember correctly, but it was 500s, where it was essentially 200 at around 800 pace. Then you go straight into a 100-meter bound, right? And what are you doing while bounding? You're increasing the force requirement, right? You are putting a ton of force into the ground, and that's what you're em- emphasizing on. And then at, right after that 100-meter bound, it was a 200-meter kick into the finish. And if you've ever done that, I, I've i tried it. I, I use this style with my 800 runners. Boy, does that last 200 just kind of suck. Going from bounding to kicking in, but it was a great way to get really specific on, well, what are we doing? We're going to now recruit fibers by shifting the, the, <laughs> the force requirement within the run with bounding and then come right off of that and learn how to utilize those fibers, prolong their, their fatigue, their resistance to fatigue and work on our biomechanics where everything is falling apart.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's just, it's just so brilliant, right? Cause it's like specific, you know, that the familiar activity the is the competitive exercise, you know, your brain knows what to do in a familiar state. Then you go to general, where it's like this is really high neural demand, but it's general. It's not. It's it's kind of like running, but it's not running. And then you go right back into specific, and then the your brain is again. Our body, we are very routinized creatures at all levels, even at a recruitment level. We use the muscle fibers that work and that have worked a lot, right? But now completely exhausted, you don't have. There the innervation there is turned off. Asto is real high in those fibers. So now what you're like. Now you're, you feel when you do something like that, really discoordinated because you're like, I don't know how to make this happen anymore. And that insult, that embarrassment, as Steve likes to say, that's the training. That's what makes it happen. And I always love, it reminds me of Canova. Like everyone's like, we think the training is a maintenance. Like people love use the Strava shit and all that. Like, look, I did all this stuff at this pace and it was easy. It felt easy and faster, but it's like, Real, real training happens in the embarrassment moment, right? The insult moment. And is the first one to say, when you do 19 mile steady run and the pace is good for 17 and the last two miles, the pace drops. That's the training. That's the training. That's the body. You body must adapt. And it's like, it's not the 17 miles at the pace you can handle. It's those last two. And the thing we often forget is elites when we look at elite workouts they need to do a lot more volume of activity to get to that embarrassment insult state so they can actually get the training stimulus less elite people more novice people weaker people you don't need to do as much upfront pre-fatiguing pre-exhaustion of that system to get to that embarrassment insult state and you don't want to spend a lot of time there either like you want to make sure like maybe three reps maximum at maximum because the body can only handle so much insult in the resistance stage before it completely surrenders and goes into exhaustion. And that's where injury occurs. That's where overtraining occurs. That's where we want to avoid that. So I tell athletes a lot, like typically the way I program is the last third of a rep or the last third of a workout or the last third of a set of work, Always the last third is where the actual training's happening. Everything else is just designed just to get you to that very fragile state. And it's a fragile state. And then, you know, again, manipulate the variables, intensity variables, or loading variables, however so, so that we can get that stimulus or that signal sent, but not completely tear you down. And the problem is, it's super easy to step over that line. I've done it so many times because I'm a pusher by nature to myself when I was training and is why I sucked <laughs> looking back. Oh God, I was just exhausted all the time. Uh, <laughs> cause I coached myself like, you know, for a long time out of college cause I was trying to experiment and figure it out. And to my now athletes benefit, I understand like when you're in that fragile state, you only can get so much productive works and signaling done before it starts to come corrosive. And that's what we have to safeguard against that's essentially like when you apply Tony Holler's feed the cats concept to distance runners, that's really what he's talking about. Like we live, we are fatigued performing athletes as distance runners, but you don't want to overdo it when you're in that fatigue state in training, because that's where a lot of corrosion happens.
0: Yeah. It really is that balance of, of stimulus where you get it. <laughs> um, and I should say, even on that Canova workout, if I remember correctly, he said like, do two, to two to four of these things, of these five hundreds, right? Because it's so freaking, you know, tough on this that you've you've got to really, uh, you know, know the the dose makes the poison, right? the The other thing on this that I think is interesting is if you look at these style of workouts that embarrass the body. We're used to thinking of it physiologically, but the Canova, you know, kick workout, I'll call it the circuits, whatever, they are embarrassing the body in not only, you know, physiologically, but a little bit neurally, as we talked about, neurologically unlike what our recruitment pattern is, because you're shifting it. Um, you see similar things throughout, you know, history that I think were used to develop kicks. So the um the uh the lineard, the the 2525 where where they would sprint they do 400 meter repeats where they would literally sprint for 25 meters and then cruise for 25 meters. Well, it's 25 meters. So you're, you're accelerating hitting top speed. And then that cruise is essentially lit off the gas, right? It's not, you don't, you have 25 (laughs) meters. It's not, it's not slowing down. Right. And they'd also do this 50, 50, I believe as well. But what are these except, except, you know, instead of bounding, you're, you're shifting that, that neural drive, quickly um which i think helps develop this ability to not only change gears but uh create some uh, resistance to fatigue and um ability to kick
1: oh yeah vinlin does that with his 150s right it's 50 you know f- fast and then 50 all out and then 50 fast and like Iglo would do this too right he call it all right you're gonna run whatever fresh Or, and then now we're going to run this much at good swing and now you're going to finish up at fresh. Right. And that's the thing where people like, because we didn't have all the physiological like data sets and, you know, correlations we do now and, you know, pace, et cetera, et cetera. wasn't like that big of a deal. Cause again, you got to remember Igloy was coaching people, not, they didn't run on the track much actually. They ran mostly on grass fields. So they kind of ballparked it. So every now and again, they get on the track, but they wouldn't like, you know, really be interval slaves on the track. So, but they use to communicate the concept through what Steve will talk about in the course, fresh, good swing, blah, 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 that there has to be this shift. And it really is this shift. And the easiest way to do that is setting things up. So we always think we gotta go constant. And it's not, it's it's a pulse, right? It's it, That's why it's like, even this comes back to flux training, the, the, the concept of flux training. It's like, it's a pulse. Go really go fast, like 80%, then go super fast, like max, but not that long. And then come back to your fast, because that's what we're trying to translate is we're trying to teach the body how to overdo it, but then come back and maintain, because that's what we want to do is maintain or mitigate deceleration when we have the finishing kick, because that's really what's happening. It's not other people are getting faster. In the last 50 meters, in an 800 or even a mile, it's actually who's slowing down less. And the person who's slowing down less is people who, who can in, absorb that insult metabolically and neurally and then maintain. And, you know, we got to remember there's lots of different fatigues, right? We have central fatigue, which is what Steve and I are talking about, that neural um, brain fatigue. We have peripheral uh, fatigue, right? Which is more going to be um, where. Actually, peripheral fatigue is where the communication between the brain and muscles starts to get a little wonky or shuts down. So the brain, so central fatigue, the brain itself gets tired. Peripheral fatigue, the communication gets tired. Cumulative metabolic fatigue, that's what we're most familiar with, right? Like acidosis going in, shutting things down, lactate, you know, flooding the system as a, you know, biomarker for all these corrosive things, blah, 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 blah. And then The other thing, too, that we got to remember is all that does also influence a really important fatigue that we don't talk about a lot, but exhaustion of your attention capacity. Mm. Can you focus? And that's where these workouts are super important is teaching that attention capacity um, improvement. because. We, we often negate it because, again, it's, it's not, not quantifiable. But if you can't focus on the task at hand, it's going to be hard, very hard to accomplish that task. And that's we see a lot of um, high performance athletes. They might not be the best biomechanical movers in the world. I can think of many off the top of my head. <laughs> I, well, I witnessed at the World Championships. But you know what? Their quote unquote willpower because they didn't exhaust that or they have a really high um, attention capacity their willpower gets them further or closer to the finish line faster than we often give them credit for.
0: That's very true. It is also the mental fatigue that comes into play, which does shift and change your attention. Right. Yeah. So that's a, that's a great point there. And I think that's where workouts often we think of the physical, but the example I like to use is in workouts, you know that if you fall apart or you slow down, like it's, it's not the end of the world. So often you adopt attention strategies, such as zoning out or thinking about what you're going to do after, et cetera, that you don't adopt in uh, in races. And what that means is races are a much higher attention demand or mental demand than you've trained for because in practice, you just said, you know what? I'm going to think about what, you know, my lunch with Susie or Johnny or what have you and just get through this rep. Yeah. And sometimes like what
1: I've done with some elite athletes who have that, like, you know, quote unquote attention deficit or that's fatigue based is in training when they're doing tough stuff like this, I'll actually try to create distractions. Right. Playing music really loud on like, you know, a speaker or, um, you know, at the track, uh, you know, just putting different like, um, you know, uh, Perturbations out there i mean just something where it's like they have to kind of zoom in because yeah. you know as phoebe wright talks about that zooming in is really important and then you also have to be able to zoom out but zooming in at the right time is a skill in of itself that is connected to how fast you can kick
0: it's very true i mean there's some interesting science that tend to show like when we zoom in <laughs> it's uh We get rid of everything else so in pilots they find that um during emergencies for example pilots zoom in so much in their brain they've studied it it actually goes where it's like all visual attention in other areas of the brain even sometimes auditory which sometimes can be useful and gets out Mm -hmm. of like literally shuts down because like their brain is saying like i'm zoomed in only to this thing because like this thing is all that matters um, that can be, again, good and helpful, narrows us, can also be bad. We lose periphery information. But what you see with the elite athletes is what you just talked about is generally when we kick, we want to zoom all the way in because we want to just cut everything else out. We don't want to pay attention to how our legs feel or, what, or like the crowd noise or what, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Like it's just adopting this narrow world um, that allows us to perform.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's one reason I stopped yelling at athletes in the final kick. Cause like they, yeah, I didn't even hear your coach. Like, cause I, you, that's what you want. You want them zoomed in. And sometimes it can be comforting and sometimes some athletes have a better, you know, uh, relationship and they want to hear that and they go, Oh, I only heard you coach, even though the stadium was like, right. But if, if an athlete says, you know, when you debrief to the an athlete and try to um, solve the problem of improving their finishing kick, that's a good place to start, too, is like, were, were they zoomed in? And so you don't ask them, hey, were you zoomed in? It's like you ask them, tell me about, like, what your sensations were the last 200 meters or what have you. And if like, oh, yeah, you know, I heard this, I heard. And they're talking about a lot of things on the peripheral in the periphery. Then that means they weren't zoomed in or like, God, all I was thinking about was just this one thing that means they zoomed in. So that's an easy place to start, too uh, versus like this training part. And one more thing I'm going to say on the training part is if we go back and we look at, uh, um, protocols that was used by, uh, like Werner Gunther and other throws and strength, um, based athletes, it's that idea of load and explode, right? And that's what say Canova was trying to get at, uh, with those, um, bounding circuits is we want to load, the brain and the tissues in the body. And then we want to try to do something explosive immediately after and I've done this with masters runners, high school runners where it's like, all right, we're going to do really, really heavy, um, trap bar deadlift squat, real heavy, like 90%, three reps, like just recruit the crap out of it. Then we're going to just go sprint <laughs> like on the track. We're going to do we lift and go like period. End of story. or, or, or do a really heavy trap bar deadlift or remaining deadlift and then immediately just walk outside and go do a hill sprint. you know, quick turnaround. Again, what that does is we know when you have a really high neural demand, and we're talking real high, it creates this condition that allows a rich learning to happen. Because remember, it's not just fatigue of fibers; it's also neuromuscular learning because your brain has to solve the problem now in a different way. So again, that creates more innervation of different motor pools. And the super important thing to remember on this is it works and we shouldn't be afraid of it. A lot of times people are like, Oh, I'm going to tear something or rip something. No, your brain body's super smart. It's going to know that it's preferred low threshold motor units have been exhausted or aren't able to complete the task. So it's going to find different things. And you have a self-protecting mechanism, which is you only can go so fast. It won't let you go faster than it can, it can go. So, (laughs) but we forget like that, that's really important. It's why you read strength training, um, texts and manuals. And you see like some coaches like, no, we only, you can lift real crazy heavy once a week and still get gains. Like you can only do a big heavy squat series once a week. And it's all the squatting you do, and you can actually still get hypertrophy in the muscles, innervation, neuromuscular coordination, provided the load is heavy enough. And that's, again, we got to balance all these parameters. But, you know, my kettlebell coach, he's really smart. And he says, you know, load is um, a teacher. Like, if something's heavy, we shouldn't necessarily be afraid of it. We should just know, like, we can only get so much out of it. When we all are so extension biased in the endurance community that, It's almost that idea of like, oh, if it wasn't a six mile run, it doesn't count. It doesn't even count. It wasn't enough. It's like, dude, if it's it's rich enough in the learning, (laughs) totally counts.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right there with you. I mean, it's it's a big concept to get in and something really important. So... I, I don't know John I think we've uh, we've given the listeners a wide array from physiological to biomechanical to neural to the uh, the dose makes the poison on, yeah. on things to look at for developing a kick man yeah that's
1: it's a lot to chew on you know what else is a lot to chew on the scholar program not only just what's in the, the course but also in the clubhouse like yeah but this is just this is what we do man this is what we do I love it I love what we do.
0: That's right. So if you're interested in that, if you want to nerd out more like we do, um, consider checking it out, you know, check out the scholar program, try it for a month. If you don't like it, you know what? It's okay. You'll get all sorts of resources. But if you're like anybody else, the dozens of dozens of emails that we've gotten and messages that say, holy crap, it's like (laughs) a kid in a candy store. I don't even know where to start.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, if hopefully if you've listened to this podcast, like working on the finishing kick, you know, there's always a place to start. The best time to start was yesterday. The second best time is to start today. And that's because again, we have to remember anytime we're doing a really highly coordinated task with a very high neural demand, it essentially is learning. It is just learning. And that as teachers of physical literacy, as we are as coaches, we want to create conditions where the athlete is a really rich learning environment. So it's not just compliance, right? Hit the pace, hit the pace, hit the pace, consistently, steadily, even though there's idea that physiologically the best way to run fast is to run even splits. That's not reality. That physiological bubble isn't the, the true reality of championship racing, of rounds, of interacting with other unknowns in the environment, which are competitors, what they're going to do. Fundamentally, we want to train, you know, champions and competitors, not time trialists. Time trials is just your ticket to the venue. Once you're at the venue, you actually really got to perform and do the thing. So it's important to understand speed isn't this anaerobic thing that you do at the end. Oh, we haven't done speed work yet. Speed's this learning, this rich learning environment that happens year round. And it, it's microdosed, right? It's just a little bit Often, you know, early and often, and you just stick with it. And then that innervation, that uh, muscle fiber recruitment, all that stuff starts to compound
0: and cascade favorably into your athlete's advantage. Yep. So check it out. Check out the Scholar Program. Keep upping your coaching. That's what we're all about, keeping an explorer. And uh, keep listening. So And get you. excited for the Igloid
1: course. It's coming. Oh my goodness. I'm already excited. I'm like Steve, so exciting. <laughs> That's
0: where it's coming. All right, everybody. Take care.